The following message is from Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found at emmanuelcommunity.org. Want to turn now to the word and get into this issue of women in leadership. It feels a little bit like I've been promising this message for a really long time. And maybe it felt like I was dodging it, like it was never going to happen. Uh, but it's finally here. And uh, it's interesting because it also aligns with Catalyst joining us for high school and junior high. And I apologize. Um, there's no real like Disney stories I'm going to tell you about. There's actually almost no illustrations in this sermon. We're just jumping right into Bible text. But I'm glad actually that the high school and junior high are with us because it's, it's the kind of message I wish actually I heard when I was a youth in church. But it's the kind of sermon that sadly I don't think I ever heard. And it's something that I think really presses on us. But maybe it's just, you know, why do I have these opinions about women in leadership? I don't know. <laughs> um, this was just the tradition that I was raised in. And I don't know how many of us have really grappled with what does the broader witness of the, the Bible have to say on this topic. So that's what we're going to tackle for the next two weeks, broken up into two different parts. And so would you join me in a, a brief word of prayer as we jump into this issue of women in leadership? Father, we uh, lay before you a difficult topic that has in many ways divided the church. And we know and this proverbial idea of the battle of the sexes, that there's so many ways in which men and women, and historically, both in and outside the church, have struggled to really understand our relationship with one another. And we just pray that the healing work of the gospel and the healing and restoring work of your kingdom would break into even uh, the war of the sexes, where we oftentimes feel at odds with one another. And may we as a church, be able to affirm the beauty of that oneness that we have as both men and women who are both under Christ. And so uh, speak to us through your word. Uh, speak uh, to our congregation through uh, my inadequate um, lips that uh, ultimately uh, what you desire, your heart for our church would be made known as we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let me just briefly give you an overview of what's going to lie ahead here. Today is kind of part one of this where I'm going to lay for you, um, first of all, some foundation as to how we read scripture, because I think that is so important to how then we come to conclusions about when we say phrases like, well, the Bible says, and then such and such about women in leadership. And then in the second part of the message, I want to lay out for you kind of a big picture of of, of, of the witness of scripture um, and seeing what it has to say about women in leadership. And then next week, uh, we will tackle what's been known as the difficult passages in 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy, these places in the Bible where we hear phrases like women need to be silent or women are not to teach, they're forbidden to teach. And we need to unpack that a bit and wrestle with what Paul means when he says words like that, which sound really harsh and maybe even contrary to a lot of what I'm going to argue for you in the message today. I think it's also important that before we launch too deep, deep, deep into looking at Bible verses and all that, that we sort of define the terms a little bit as to what we are talking about. Because in one way, 
it's just too simplistic to do this, but for the purpose of argument, we can sort of lump the two camps that have existed in the church into to, to, to kind of these two big buckets. And the first is what we could call complementarians, and the second is what we can call egalitarians. And so under this complementarian side, we can further divide it into what we could call hard complementarians and soft complementarians. From the hard complementarian position, which sometimes is also referred to as patriarchy, the basic thinking is like this. God ordained men to have authority over women. And so the women's role is to submit to their leadership while the men are called to lead by God. And so when it comes to family, wives must submit to their husbands. And then when it comes to the church, men are to lead pretty much everything, okay? And so women are not to assume any leadership roles in society as well in this hard patriarchy view. So for example, if you are under this view, if you're a Bible-believing Christian, uh, you should not be like a CEO or a CFO or a COO or not even that, but even a mid-level manager in a company because then you would be exerting authority over a male. And that's not just limited to the church, but it's basically God's design for creation. So really no woman should ever have any authority over any man. Okay? Um, and so that's the hard complementarian position, which there are definitely hard complementarians in, in America today, but we could probably safely say that it tends to be a minority position nowadays because there's a bit of a softer, more progressive complementarianism that I think dominates today. And under the soft complementarian or patriarchy view of women's leadership, it's generally, the argument is, that God did ordain men to lead and women to follow, but women may exercise some forms of leadership. So they could be managers in the marketplace, or they could, for example, be deacons, although they may not be able to be elders in the church. Um, and that would be one of the big stipulations, even under the soft patriarchy or complementarian position, is that the one position in the church that women are forbidden from is being a pastor or a biblical elder. In other words, any sense in which they take some level of authority in teaching or shepherding over a male adult would basically be considered unbiblical. And so they are forbidden from positions like that. When it comes to family and marriage, soft patriarchy will often use the term tie-breaking authority, meaning that in most relational aspects, husbands and wives will try to settle things more from a partnership standpoint. But if you get to the point where husband and wife are just butting heads, and no matter how much you're praying through it and talking through it, you can't resolve the debate, then in the soft complementarian position, the husband would have tie-breaking authority and say, hey, listen, I'm sorry, we need to settle this, and as the male, I'm going to call the shot, and this is the way that we are going to go as a family, okay? And so the overall view of the complementarian position is that while women are equal in worth and value, the roles that they've been given to them by God differ when it comes to marriage and church and society, okay? The egalitarian position, which also is sometimes known as the mutuality position, uh, sees it quite differently. And what they would argue is that God ordained men and women to have equal access to positions of leadership in society and the church. And women may fulfill the role of pastor and elder in the local church. Basically, the overall belief here is that there is full equality, not only in worth, but also in role or function 
within all the different spheres of life, in family, in church, in society, okay? That's what, is, what I will be referring to as the egalitarian position, all right? Now, I know this is a really long and involved introduction, but let me just say one more introductory word, which is to share with you a bit of my own journey through all of this. So from my youth, I think I was raised in a church, uh, raised in churches that largely held to a complementarian position as the biblical one. And the truth is the egalitarian position was often casted as the secular or feminist reaction against God's created order. And so raised in that tradition, um, I think truthfully when I did encounter some women leaders, I'll be fully honest and admit that um, I tended to really look very negatively at them. And I would kind of look for any flaw or reason to, to discount their leadership, say, uh, yeah, why, why is she so strong, you know? Uh, why she had that attitude? Uh, why is it that these women leaders are acting like they have a chip on their shoulder or something like that? And it, in my mind, only seemed to confirm the fact that women were not fit to be leaders because that's how they act when you're given leadership. Well, then I went to seminary and I went to seminary at Trinity, just right here in Chicago. And I actually found out that a significant number of the professors at Trinity were actually egalitarian. And that shocked me <laughs> because Trinity is not exactly known as a liberal bastion, okay? Um, and what shocked me more was the fact that I had always saw the egalitarian position as largely a politicized position, not a biblical one. Because if you're really faithful to the Bible, you have to be a complementarian. And so it kind of shattered those categories because I thought, these professors know the Bible far better than I do. They're the ones teaching me, and yet how can they hold to an egalitarian position? It didn't make sense. Well, in my seminary years, I was teaching a Bible study, and I decided to tackle this issue in that Bible study. And so we spent like seven, eight weeks studying this issue. And in order to prepare for this Bible study, I actually immersed myself in a number of egalitarian books, books written by egalitarian authors who try to argue that egalitarian position. And what I realized is, you know, it is so easy to demonize the opposition, isn't it? when you don't agree with a different camp, to just not even understand what they're trying to say or read their views, but just put them down and just attack them. Um, but as I read these egalitarian books, I realized, you know, there is a biblical argument to be made here for equality of women in leadership. And I had never even bothered to try to understand what that was. I will say this, by the end of teaching that series, I was still a complementarian, but a very shaky one, okay? I, I was not yet ready to abandon my complementarian roots, but at least what I could say is by the end of that journey, I was very sympathetic to the egalitarian position. Well, that was about 20 years ago. And over the next couple of decades, I've done further reading and studying on this topic of women in leadership. And now, Basically, what I can say is that I stand in a place where I've fully embraced the egalitarian position on women in leadership. That from my personal standpoint, I do not have a problem with the idea of ordaining women into positions of pastoring and eldership in a church.
Um, and I want to share with you a bit about that journey as it relates to my own exploration of Scripture. Actually, I kind of lied to you. There's a few more introductory remarks I still need to make, okay? Here you go. This is a difficult topic for both sides of the debate. I would argue that regardless of whether you hold to a complementarian or an egalitarian point of view, if you look at the other position and say, those guys are bozos, I don't know what they're thinking, then I would say you are not being fair to the debate. If there was a slam dunk argument here, the church would not be arguing about it 2,000 years later after the New Testament was written. There is no slam dunk argument here. It is hard. And the truth is, there are passages in the Bible that seem to contradict each other. Some that seem in favor of women in leadership and others that are not. It is not meaning that there is an actual contradiction. It's an apparent contradiction because there are just things that we don't have access to when the original conversations were being had over women in leadership. Another thing that I want to say is this. This is not a cardinal doctrine that ought to divide the church. And yet, it is unique in the sense that though it is a secondary doctrine, it is still a matter that needs to be settled by us because it's a little hard to have a church where half of us believe in women elders and the other half doesn't, right? It, I don't see how we could function as a community like that. And it would be like half of us go, oh, yeah, you know, we, you know she's going to preach a sermon, and the other half turn their backs, right? Because <laughs> they're not going to listen to a woman because they don't believe in women elders. So even though it is a secondary doctrine that should not divide us, I think when it comes to any local church or denomination, it makes sense as to why you need to take an official position on this matter in order to be able to function normally in unity as a congregation, okay? And what I can also tell you is that at this point, ICC does not have any official policy on women elders, but we have de facto been operating like a complementarian church. I think just largely because that's the tradi tradition that most of us have been raised in. What I could also say is that both as a church leadership and as a network, we are part of a larger network known as Thrive. And this is ultimately a decision that needs to be made by the network, okay? And so this is something that the Thrive Board needs to make a ruling on, and we are working on that. I can say that this could be a 10-part series, and I would still not exhaust everything that could be said on this topic, but I've chosen to just distill it in a two-part sermon, which is not going to do justice to the breadth and the complexity of this issue of women in leadership. And so we are going to find different opportunities for you to interact with this. And I will probably send out written stuff for you to read, maybe even have a town hall or things like that to just give you opportunity to interact with this. Hopefully you guys will be discussing it in your life groups and sharing what your own convictions are in it. And that's going to be a fun discussion, I'm sure, in some of your life groups as you kind of put your cards on the table and let one another know how you feel about these matters. But at the end of the day, it is my sincere hope that wherever we land as a governing decision on this matter of women elders, um, that we could still be one body, one family in Christ, that this doesn't have to be something that causes us to say, I cannot have fellowship with you if you're going to believe that. Um, and so with those <laughs> many introductions, let me get into this first half of this idea of how we read the Bible. 
Let me start, first start with this statement that the Bible is not primarily a rule book intended to comprehensively lay out all the rules of life for Christians. Now, the Bible does contain rules and principles within it, but much of the Bible is given to us in story form, telling us what God has done in previous generations. And so the task that lays before us as Christians in the modern era is that in our freedom in Christ, we must wrestle with how to adapt these biblical stories and other teachings to our present times. There is a tremendous amount of care and wisdom that is needed to do this adaptation of these Bible stories and principles to our modern situation. A phrase that John Walton says he's kind of known for is, I think, so important here. And he says, even though the Bible was written for us, it wasn't written to us. And this distinction is so vital when we try to interpret Scripture. The Bible was written for us, but it is not written to us. What Walton is saying is that though God intended us to read the Bible, it is like a love letter of God to us. These books of the Bible were first written to somebody else, not you. And so a way to think about it is that it is like eavesdropping on someone else's conversation. Okay? Imagine if you overheard your coworkers talking on Monday morning about the weekend. And they're saying, oh my goodness, Saturday night at the club was crazy, wasn't it? Can you believe what he did? I mean, those moves were ridiculous. I can't even look at him with a straight face this morning. And you're sitting there hearing all this. And you're thinking, what happened at the club? Who are they talking about? Mark? Chad? I bet you it was Chad. Moves. What moves? Dance moves? Or was he making a move on Julie? Because I know he had his eye on Julie. <laughs> you see, when you eavesdrop on a conversation, you, you get the general sense of what's going on. But there's so much detail that you can't figure out, right? Uh, because these two people talking can assume a lot of shared knowledge about what they're talking about. But you do not have access to that shared knowledge. Um, this is in some ways what it is like to study the Bible. It is an author of a book talking to a specific person or a group of people, and there's a lot of shared knowledge between the two of them. So they could assume a lot. And we are sort of eavesdropping or listening in on that conversation and trying to piece together what is the issue at hand? And what is going on here? And as we do that piecing together, we need to be very careful to preserve what was originally meant when that conversation first took place. And we see this process of interpretation and adaptation happening in the Bible itself in the example of circumcision. Okay? Genesis chapter 17 lays out what God commanded to Abraham about this act of circumcision in verses 9 to 10 and then verse 13. Then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. You're the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. 
My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. So this command given to Abraham and to all of his Jewish descendants for every generation that would follow is to circumcise every male in your household. And for when? It says for all time, for everlasting. And the Jews took this command very seriously. They were made sure that every male was circumcised. And not only that, but they circumcised any Gentile converts who came into their community. And so now they're stuck with a situation where in Christ... They have to figure out what do we do with all of these Gentiles who are coming to Jesus? Because it seems pretty clear. It says this is an everlasting covenant. For us, after the debate's been settled, it seems kind of obvious to us you don't circumcise. But can you at least be sympathetic to the struggle the Jews had at that time? to look at this teaching and say, so what do we do? Do we circumcise or do we not circumcise? It became a huge debate in the church. So much so that the very first church council ever formed, the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, took place over this issue of circumcision so that they could settle the matter once and for all. And there was one group that was very strongly fighting for circumcision, saying, it's not any clearer than this. We have to circumcise. But Paul and Barnabas rose up and argued just as energetically, no, that is not the right interpretation of Genesis. Because what Paul argued was he said, look at passages like Deuteronomy 10, verse 16. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. And so based on this and along with other passages that talk about circumcision of the heart, Paul was arguing saying, listen, the physical act of circumcision is not what is important. What is important is what that circumcision represents, which is a heart that is laid bare before God in surrender to him and in covenant with him of, of, of entering into his promise. And so based on that, Paul would say this in Romans chapter 2, 28 to 29. A person is not a Jew who is only who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. And so using this logic, he says, let us not create any unnecessary barriers for these Gentiles to come to faith by saying, hey, if you do, then you got to, you know, snip, snip there, you know, and you can't be a Christian until you undergo this medical procedure. And they said, listen, what matters is circumcision of the heart. And if they are in Christ, they have experienced that circumcision of the heart. And so let us not physically force circumcision on them. And then Paul would say to the Galatians in chapter 5, verse 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressed itself through love. You see what's happening here? This is an example of Christians in the New Testament wrestling with teaching in the Old Testament and saying, how do we apply this into our life? And it's not always so simple or so easy. Thank God Paul and Barnabas won, right? Think about how hard it would be to evangelize men today if the other side won. And circumcision was practiced even to this day. Let me ask you another question. What about the death penalty? What about the death penalty? Is the death penalty biblical or unbiblical? 
Again, I'm going to argue the answer is not so simple. You can look at a passage like Genesis 9, 6, and it says, whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. And so based on this verse, those who are pro-death penalty say, this is a slam dunk. It's obvious. If you're a Bible-believing Christian, you have to believe in the death penalty in capital punishment. Well, let's slow it down a little here and say, yeah, but there are some passages in the Bible that seem to argue against the death penalty. Let me give you an example of some of them. Can you turn the slide? Cain wasn't put to death after he murdered Abel, and that was in God's own hands, wasn't it? He spared Cain, even though he took life. God, even in the law of Moses, designated cities of refuge where people who had murdered someone, if it was done in an unintentional way or under certain other circumstances, could flee and find refuge. And then these teachers of the law, using God's law itself, drags this woman caught in the very act of adultery and says the law requires her death, capital punishment according to our law. And Jesus said, whoever is without sin, cast the first stone and refused to put her to death. And then Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, teaches us rather than seeking revenge to turn the other cheek. So what is it? How would you answer what the Bible says about capital punishment? Yes? No? It becomes very complicated, doesn't it? Right? Think about some modern considerations then when we're trying to apply these principles even into our time. So sometimes we can make a deterrence argument that we need to enforce capital punishment as a deterrence to the worst and most heinous crimes like murder. And also, isn't there a justice component to it? Justice for the victims of crimes. And that's why we need capital punishment. But then what about this issue of an imperfect justice system where the truth is the poor and certain minorities are clearly on death row by far greater numbers than the majority are? And then what about the fact that truthfully people who are innocent are put to death? And then what about the argument that if you let somebody live and just give them a life sentence, what if they come to know Jesus later? And would you prematurely undercut that by putting them to death? As you can see, the Bible does not give us simplistic rules to follow blindly. But what the Bible calls us to is wisdom and discernment, to figure out how we can best honor God by the nuanced teaching of Scripture that often doesn't make it so easy for us to determine what is the blanket right thing to do in this situation. And I'm going to argue that we run into something very similar when it comes to the challenge of, does the Bible endorse or not endorse women in leadership? The picture of the Bible is complex, and often at times it can even seem contradictory. What I want to say, though, about it is this. In this debate about whether women can lead or not, I find one of the problems in the debate is that there is an inordinate focus on these difficult passages in 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy about women be silent and women cannot teach. And as one author said, that is like trying to say what the Bible says about marriage by only looking at the passages that talk about divorce, right? Say, so, well, let's see what God says about marriage and let's only look at passages on divorce. 
Instead, I think what we need to do is look at the overall witness of Scripture and see what is the big picture that is being painted about women in leadership. What I want to argue in, in this next section of the message is that the Bible contains a rich and often countercultural record of women being elevated to positions of influence and leadership. That's what I'm going to argue here. Because the status quo, the norm, the default position in almost all of human history is patriarchy. Actually, hard patriarchy. Where very often women were viewed as nothing more than property by the men of the household. And what we see from even ancient times is a countercultural lifting up of women into positions of leadership. Let's actually start a little earlier, though, with creation itself, where the Bible begins by establishing the fact that men and women were both made in the image of God. And therefore, they share this role of caring and ruling over creation. Genesis 1.27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. What I would argue is that there is no hierarchy, no focus on hierarchy establishing authority of anyone over the other in this creation account. Instead, what seems to be emphasized is the unity that men and women had with each other, what is described in Genesis as coming together as one flesh. But then when sin enters the picture, a curse is given to the woman in Genesis 3, 16. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, complementarians argue, ha ha, there you go. This is God restoring his original intended desire for men to be over women. And by Eve seducing Adam to eat the forbidden fruit, that was an upturning of that design of God where the woman tried to rule over the man and now God is riding that ship and making it right again by establishing authority over her. The problem I have with that interpretation is that if you actually look in Genesis 4-7, it says this, talking about Cain. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. If you look at this in the original Hebrew, the language is almost identical, and there seems to be a reason for that. It seems to be describing some kind of parallelism here between these two situations. And what God is telling to Cain is, your dysfunctional relationships with sin is that sin is trying to control you and rule over your heart, but you must master sin and control it and have a control over it. And if we make that same parallel with what he is saying to Eve, he is not talking about his original design of men being over women. What he seems to be saying is you are going to try to master over your husband or manipulate him or control him, and he is going to want to dominate you just like sin dominated Cain. It's not talking about a healthy, positive thing. It's talking about a dysfunctional power play here of both sides that are in opposition with each other fighting to gain dominance over the other person. And so it seems to be more describing the fall rather than God's design of these, a war between husbands and wives, men and women, causing each to fight for power in the relationship. You see, if this were more about a God-designed hierarchy that he desired, then here is the questionable argument from silence 
then why is it that there is not a single other Old Testament passage where God says, husbands have authority over your wives. Men have authority over women. That command does not exist anywhere in the Old Testament. As Linda Linda Belleville writes, but the man's rule over the woman is not cited even once, not even for the husband-wife relationship. The simple fact is that male rule does not reappear in the Old Testament. The woman is nowhere commanded to obey the man, not even her husband, and the man is nowhere commanded to rule the woman, not even his wife. Now, again, it's an argument from silence, but I think it's a strong one, that if this was the God-ordained design of creation, why is it that it is never echoed anywhere in the Old Testament again? Instead, I would argue that the main problem created by sin is not a breakdown of the proper leadership structure that God ordained between men and women, but the oneness that they experienced before the fall. And we see that breakdown very clearly in Genesis 3 when as God confronts Adam, he throws Eve under the bus and says, well, this woman you gave me, you know, she's the cause of it. And so that is actually more representative of what needs to be healed by God. Not about who's on top, who's on bottom, who gets to call the shots, but this fundamental dysfunction and breakdown in the relationship because of sin of husband and wife, men and women. And I believe that is at the heart of one of the healings that takes place in God's kingdom. It is the healing of the brokenness of that oneness that is lost. And that is why in Galatians 3, 28, Paul can make this amazing statement. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The complementarians will argue that all this means is that everybody has access to the gospel. Everyone can be saved, Jew or Greek, slave or free. Men or women, it's just speaking about the universal availability of the gospel. That's all it's saying is what complementarians would say. The reason why I have a problem with that interpretation is because it seems to be talking about not only our vertical relationship with God, but also if you look at these categories, these are categories that not only separate us from God, but from one another. It's the hostility that exists with Jew and Gentile, slave and free, and men and women. And so I think it's talking about a greater healing than simply our walk with God, but our relationship with one another. All of these categories, in other words, that often became a dividing wall that separated us is being broken down by God in Jesus Christ to make us one once again as he intended. And so I think the invitation for all of us that we have to wrestle with is what are the biases in my own heart against the opposite sex? If you were to complete sentences like all men are, or all women are, or my wife is, or my husband is, because he's a man, or because she's a woman, or the problem with men is, or the problem with women is, or how about the problem with male leaders is, or the problem with female leaders is. And however you would complete that sentence, I think that is the healing that God is after in Jesus Christ. And one of the ways that God does that amazing healing is by the pouring of the Holy Spirit. And when he does that, what is interesting is that we're told he pours out his Holy Spirit indiscriminately on men and women 
alike. Acts chapter 2, verse 16 to 18. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, servants both men and women I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. In this equipping to do the ministry of the kingdom, God doesn't distinguish between men and women, but says all, whether you're male or female, have access to the power of God in you to do this work. I'm calling you as the church of Jesus Christ. There is no gender distinction to the gifts of the spirit, but we are all equally given them to accomplish his kingdom work. Well, let's now look then at the kind of women that were lifted up by God to do some of those works. And I'm just going to list a few of the many that I could chose, I have chosen. Start with Miriam. Miriam was the sister of Moses and Aaron. And she became one of the top leadership positions along with Moses and Aaron in this new nation of Israel. Between her and Moses and Aaron, the three of them, they basically become like the prime ministers of this new nation. And in Micah chapter 6, verse 4, it says, God speaking through his prophet, I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. So you could argue and say, well, Moses only appointed Miriam because that was his sister and that was nepotism. But what God is saying through the prophet is, it wasn't Moses that appointed her. I chose Miriam to be a leader of Israel and have a position of power like that. Another one in the Old Testament is Deborah. Deborah was a prophet, a judge, and a general of Israel's armies. This means that she was not only a military and a political, but also a spiritual leader over all of God's people. And again, if you read Judges 4 to 5, it's very clear that this is by God's appointment. God chose Deborah to be in this top position of leadership over all of his people. The one that fascinates me the most in the Old Testament, though, is this figure that almost nobody knows about. And I know this because none of us name our daughters this. But it's this woman named Huldah. Huldah. Okay? Now, this is Huldah's story. King Josiah is cleaning out the temple when they discover the Torah, the law, there. And so he has somebody read it to him. And as he reads it, his heart is utterly crushed by the fact that the people of God are not living according to this law. And he realizes that this forgotten law, he needs to understand more deeply what it says. And he's trying to find a prophet who could explain the law to him. Now, these are his choices he could choose to bring to his court and have him explain the law. He could cho have chosen Jeremiah. He could have chosen Zephaniah. He could have chosen Nahum. And he could have chosen Habakkuk. All four of these prominent prophets, all men, were writers of the Bible. They all have books in the Bible. But he bypassed all four of these men, and the person he handpicked was a prophetess named Huldah, a woman, to explain the law to him. In 2 Chronicles 34, verse 22, Hilkiah and those the king had sent with him went to speak to the prophet Huldah, who was, with, who was the wife of Shalom, son of Kohath the son of Hazra, keeper of the wardrobe. She lived in Jerusalem in the new quarter. And if you read on, basically, he says, the king has chosen you to explain the law to him and help him understand it. 
When we look at the big story of the Bible, it contains stories like this of women who rose up to do great things and play pivotal roles in Israel's history. And the part that I struggle is rather than celebrating what these women have done in redemptive history, the complementarians, too many of them have argued that all this reveals is the brokenness of our world because of sin. And I'm not kidding you. What the complementarian argument is, is that it just shows you how messed up the world is, that there wasn't a guy good enough to do that job. And so God had to settle for a woman. That's how the, uh, many complementarians would rationalize this, to say they can't explain it any other way than because God couldn't find a worthy man, he had to settle for a woman. And I have a really hard time with that, of believing that that is the interpretation of all of these countercultural examples of when God intentionally chose a woman to lead his people to do great things. When you go into the New Testament, let me just give you a couple examples and I'll start wrapping up here. Again, we see that same pattern of women being elevated into positions of influence and leadership in the early church. Priscilla was one. She was the wife of Aquila. And they made tents together with Paul in Corinth. And they traveled together to Ephesus where they ran into a new convert named Apollos who will become one of the prominent leaders of the early church. And what's interesting is that Priscilla and Aquila discipled him. In Acts chapter 18, verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Now, both complementarian and egalitarian scholars will agree that because this was so unusual for Priscilla to be named first, it likely means that she was the leader in the pair, that she had more of a dominant role in their couple uh, relationship. And likely, she was the one that took the lead in even teaching Apollos. Another person, Phoebe, who was a deacon in the church. And Phoebe, as a deacon in the church, would have done things that in our modern categories would have been very pastoral, like financial oversight and visitation of the sick and assistance to the poor and teaching. And what is interesting is that most scholars, New Testament scholars, believe that Phoebe is the one that was the courier of the letter of Romans. And she brought this to the Roman congregations, and she would have been then the one who would have read this letter. Romans chapter 16, verse 1 to 2, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church of Sancrea. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you. For she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. And so here is a woman being charged with the letter of Romans, and it is not only to read the letter, but in those days, you would not only read the letter, but there would be a Q&A where you would explain the letter to the people. And so in many ways, you could say that this woman named Phoebe was the first teacher of the book of Romans, arguably the most important letter Paul ever wrote. And that was entrusted to a woman to explain the book of Romans to the church. The last one I will highlight is this, Junia, Junia. Romans chapter 16, verse 7 says this, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Now, this is interesting because in this rendering in the NIV, it seems to suggest that Junia, a female, was an apostle. 
Now, what began to happen is in the 20th century, Bible translations begin to alter this from Junia to Junius. And Junius is the male form of Junia. And the reason why they did that was they said, there is no way this could be a woman, so this must be a scribal error. They dropped the S. Let's put the S back in there. Now, there's been a lot of pushback against that and said, you can't do this with the Bible. You can't just throw a convenient S in there to fit your doctrine, your theology. And so now most translators will say, that's not kosher. You can't do that. But what I find interesting is there are other ways that complementarians have tried to get around what is the much more straightforward rendering of this in the Greek. And so if you read the ESV version of this verse, this is what it says. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. You see how this rendering no longer makes her an apostle, but she was affirmed by the apostles, who they assume were all men. Now, again, this is a possible way to translate the Greek, but most biblical scholars will say that's not the natural rendering in the Greek grammar to translate it this way. And this is, again, where our theological biases can even affect the way we choose to translate the Bible in certain ways. Well, I'm going to just stop there and say this as I wrap up here. Um, even as we see God pushing against these cultural norms of patriarchy and raise up women in both the Old and New Testament to do great feats of leadership, um, I think we have to acknowledge that the majority of the Bible does demonstrate male dominance. But what I also want, want to argue is that that doesn't necessarily mean that that is what God wanted by his design. You could, if we are going to use, in other words, this as an argument to keep women out of leadership positions, then the same argument could be forwarded to legitimize polygamy as well as to argue for slavery as a legitimate institution. And it has been used in that way in the past. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that next week. Some ask, why were there no women among the 12 disciples if Jesus was so progressive and was such an egalitarian? Well, we have to be cautious about arguments like this, that that means inevitably that Jesus didn't want women in top leadership positions. As Craig Keener says, some people question why Jesus, who often showed himself to be countercultural, chose only men for his 12 most prominent disciples. Jesus was indeed countercultural in advancing the status of women. But even Jesus did not directly challenge every detail of his culture, choosing his closest workers most strategically for the culture he intended to reach. None of the 12 was a Gentile, a slave, or as far as we know, a peasant or even a Judean. Most were Galileans, and the five whose occupations we know apparently came from the top 10% of wage-earning occupations in Galilee. So you see what I'm saying? It was actually a very narrow sociological sliver from which Jesus drew, derived his 12 uh, disciples. And so before we jump to any conclusions that what's being said here is that women cannot lead, we have to be very careful. Again, we see that Jesus pushed against these cultures because women were not allowed to study under rabbis. It would have been totally scandalous to send out women in a Jewish culture like that to preach the gospel of the kingdom at that time. 
And yet Jesus included these women in the bigger band of his disciples, which was a very significant departure from rabbis of his time. We know that story of Mary sitting at Jesus' feet and Jesus inviting her to do so along with the men. To a contemporary rabbi at the time, that would have been unthinkable. You do not let women to sit at your feet and learn under you. We know that women were the key witnesses of the resurrection, over, even though generally they were not permitted to even testify in a Jewish court. And so this is the sort of tension we see throughout the Bible, is in many ways it seems to affirm the traditional patriarchy, the status quo, but you see these little evidence of countercultural pushing back against the grain to fight against that norm. And I believe that is representing the inbreaking of the kingdom of God as the societal norms allow for more and more of it, it is actually inviting that kind of transformation. So much so that by the time that you get to Paul writing to the Romans and the Philippians, you see that there are women leaders being addressed throughout those letters. And if you look at Romans 16, the closing of that letter, a full third of all of the leaders and specific people he calls out are women in a society where women leadership was actually much more acceptable culturally. We see the rise of women leaders throughout the church in Rome. Let me just close by uh, reading a quote from Beth Allison Barr, and she says this, patriarchy exists in the Bible because the Bible was written in a patriarchal world. Historically speaking, there is nothing surprising about biblical stories and passages riddled with patriarchal attitudes and actions. What is surprising is how many biblical passages and stories undermine rather than support patriarchy. Even John Piper admitted in 1984 that he can't figure out what to do with Deborah and Alda. The most difficult passages in the Bible to explain, historically speaking, are those like Galatians 3, 26 to 28. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. This is what is radical. This is what makes Christianity so different from the rest of human history.